Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 15 and reading down to verse 22. So hear the word of the Lord. So brothers and sisters, I'm using a human illustration here. No one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. My point is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. So why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions, until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then the righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do... um, Give thanks for the work that you've done in our lives, Lord. The work that you've done here for the last eight years has been um, miraculous, Lord. And we just give thanks to you, God. And we continually long to be a church that, um, that is a faithful presence of love in this community. That this church will not be about a certain name. This church will never be about a certain personality. But that this church will always be about one name, And that name is Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us in our imperfectness, right? To point to you who is perfect. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So here's here's what I want to do today. And my desire is to kind of come back and deal with this next Sunday also. Because uh, I, th- I think what Paul is doing here at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 is trying to clear up some confusion when it comes to regards to the law of God. So just like Josh said last week, there's like 600 plus laws, all right? So if you want to like boost up your devotional life, go read the book of Leviticus, amen? <laughs> right, supposed to laugh at that. Nobody laughed. You guys are ridiculous. All right, so, uh, but, but it is, like, it, like, it's sometimes really confusing on what we're to do with this massive amount of material in the Old Testament. Uh, now, it, you could break up the laws in three large categories. You got the civil law, which kind of tells the nation of Israel how to kind of function as a people, all right? So you got to remember they're, they're in slavery for 400 plus years. They don't even know how to function. They don't know how to live. So God had to give them Hey, this is how you function as a, as a people, all right? Then you got these ceremonial laws where we learn that God is holy and we're unholy and what do we have to do to approach God? And then we have the moral law. So there's these three large categories that you can kind of place all 600 of these laws in. So what we know, and I know I'm, boy, I'm giving you a real fast-forward version of this, so bear with me. If I've 
create a lot of confusion. You can come at the end and ask me questions. But what we know is that Jesus fulfills all those. He fulfills the civil law, ceremonial law, and the moral law. So then, since Jesus is the one that fulfilled all the laws, then if I'm in Christ, then what is my relationship to the law of God? Specifically, the moral law that finds itself again in the New Testament. And then I'll come back to this at the end. But then we got the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus kind of puts the law on steroids. You know what I'm saying? It's like, you know, if I just kind of look at the Ten Commandments, eh, I might be doing okay, but didn't you add Jesus in there? And it's like, oh, I don't know about that, right? It's just like, wow. So what do we do? What's the, the relationship here? What's the purpose of the law? And that's exactly what, um, what Paul's addressing with the people in Galatia. Here, the, you know, the churches, the, the, the individuals in these churches, as well as these false teachers, there's just a lot of confusion because law, you know, because Paul is just basically saying like, all right, look, you're in by grace. That's it. And so, you know, it's not about the law. It's not all about your obedience to the law. It's all grace. It's a massive gift. And, and they're just stepping back going, okay, all right, I hear you. But man, there's a, there's a lot of Old Testament stuff that talks about the law. Then what's my relationship to it now? And so what I think is happening here and what Paul seems to address in these verses 15 to 22 is a conversation that's sort of going on that we don't have recorded, all right? So, so the people that are hearing this letter know the conversation that's kind of going on and why Paul is addressing this, but we don't know what it is, all right? So here's probably what's happening here is that the, the Judaizers, these false teachers are going, all right, I'm kind of with you, Paul. You've made a good argument that Abraham received this blessing from God by faith. He just believed, right? We're, we're seeing that argument. We see this in Genesis 12. God shows up in Abraham's world, said, this is what I want to do. Here's your promises. And all Abraham had to do was believe. They're going, okay, I get that. I, I, I'm kind of with you on that. However, Paul, 400 years later, here comes the law of God. And so here's our conclusion, Paul, that God comes and gives this promise of what he's going to do that Abraham believes by faith, but then God brings the law of God to help us know what our part is. What we got to do to finish the deal. What we got to do to stay in the family, so to speak. So yeah, Paul, I'm with you. God made a promise to Abraham. He believed that by faith, but that was God's part. 400 years later, God brings the law in to tell us what our part is. Like, this is your end of the bargain. This is what you've got to live up to. And that's the conclusion that the Judaizers are making about this relationship to the law of God now. And Paul comes in and goes, there's a big plan for the law of God, but that's not it. You're a little off. And so he does these, 50, these verses here, 15 to 22, to kind of help us explain, then what is the purpose of the law? Here's my end goal. Today... And next Sunday, I want the law, this gift that God has given to humanity. And for some of you in this room, you're going, I don't see the law as a gift. I see it as a curse. I hate it. You know what I'm saying? So just kind of bear with me. I want the law, this gift that God has given to us, to have its God-given way in our lives. I'll say it again, all right? Today, this is where I'm going. Next Sunday, hopefully you'll come back. It won't be a repeat, but I'm going the same direction. I want 
the law, this gift that God has given to humanity, to have its God-given way in our lives. Now, what do I mean by this God-given way? Well, I think Paul explains it to us here in these seven verses. So follow me. Let's start in verse 15. And all I want to do here, I don't want to break this up by giving like titles and all that kind of silly, not that silly, but sometimes it gets a little lost. I just want us to kind of walk through these seven verses and follow the train of thought here for Paul. Because that's what he wants you to do. He wants you to kind of follow along with me. Because there should be some questions that are stirring up in us. All right? So let's start off in verse 15. Look what he says here. Brothers and sisters, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will. So all of us in this room know kind of what he's talking about here. So generally speaking, I'm not a lawyer. I'm sure there are loopholes. Amen, Barry? I'm sure there are loopholes somewhere around here. But when a will is made legally, you can't, like, change that. You can't come back and, and change that. When it's made legally, generally speaking, it's binding. So, for example, let's say your mom makes a will. She has a brand-new car, and she wills that brand-new car to your sister because your sister is driving a piece of junk, and your car is in good shape, okay? So it makes sense, Yeah. Definitely, wheel the new car to my sister because I've got a nice car. She's got a piece of trash, right? Your mom passes away, and the next day your car blows up. Now your circumstances have changed, right? It's like, I could use that car. But you can't change the will. It's binding. Yeah, your circumstances change, your conditions change, but that car is still going to your sister. So follow Paul. What he's saying here is that yes. If that's true, humanly speaking, how much more true is it of God's promises? They don't change. They don't get altered. They don't become invalid. Follow what he says in verse 16. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham, and these promises are in Genesis chapter 12, a promise of land, a promise of descendants that's numerous, you know, more numerous than what you can see in the stars, and a promise that the nations will be blessed through your seed, which is Jesus. He does not say, and to the seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed who is Christ. All Paul is saying there is this. All these promises were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. If you want to get in on these promises, you don't work for it. You trust in Jesus. All right? Verse 17. My point is this. I love it when Paul's clear, because there's a lot of times when Paul is unclear. Amen? Right? So, case in point, verse 16. That's a little unclear. But we're moving on. And there's another little verse we're just going to kind of skip over, 20 and 21, where it talks about mediator, God is one. We're not even talking about that one because that's way unclear. Verse 17, here's my point. My point is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise. But God has graciously given it to Abraham. How? How did he give it? Through the promise. Here's what Paul is saying here. The law does not come first. It comes after the promise. So therefore, it doesn't invalidate or it doesn't do away with the promise. Just like the will illustration that he mentioned there in verse 15. So Paul is saying this. The promise cannot be changed by something that happened 400 plus years later. The law exists within the context of the promise, not the other way around. And that's what he's saying 
really clear in verse 17. My point is this. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate or make the covenant go away. No. Does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God, thus cancel the promise. What Paul is trying to help them see is that it's not both and, it's either or. And here's what I mean by this. You can't have both a promise and work. You can't have the promise of God and then the work that you need to do in order to get on the promise. Because then it's not a promise, right? If I make a promise to you that I'm going to give you something, then what do you have to do in order to receive it? Okay, you can say this out loud. Believe. That's it. If you've got to work for the promise, then it's no longer a promise. It's called performance, right? So, for example, let's say you got a rich Uncle Joe. Amen? Now we all want a rich Uncle Joe? I just want a rich uncle somewhere. Amen? That's right. It's like, if you're rich, I'll call you an uncle. We can get, kind of figure this out. But here's, here's the thing. So let's, thanks for laughing a little bit on that one because that was just a joke. All right, just say you have a rich Uncle Joe, and Uncle Joe says, hey, you know what? I want to give you a million dollars. I want to give you a million dollars. You show up tomorrow at Starbucks, 6 a.m., I'm going to give you a million dollars. How does that promise become true for you? What do you got to do? You got to show up. And the reason why you'll show up is why? Because you believe in the promise. Are you following me? But if your Uncle Joe calls you and says, hey, I want to give you a million dollars, but here's what I need you to do, right? That's not a promise. The giving of that a million dollars is based upon your performance and what you're doing. All Paul is trying to say, it's either comes by grace or it comes by works. It can't be both and. It's either comes by the giver's promise or the receiver's performance. It is either one or the other. You cannot have both. Because if blessing is given by performance, then it does away with the promise. And that's exactly what Paul is trying to state in verse 18. Look what he says here. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise. But God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. So yeah, follow Paul. Paul's going, yes, the law came 400 some odd years later, but it did not do away with the promise. Actually, the law serves the promise. And you've got to understand the law in the context of this promise that was made to Abraham. So if all this is kind of, your, if you're following Paul's train of thought here, that the next question is this. Then how does the law serve the promise? How am I to understand the law in the context of the promise? What was the purpose of the law? If it wasn't these guidelines of what we've got to do to get God, then what's the purpose of it? Well, great question. Verse 19, look what Paul says. This is where he's clear again, amen? He says this, why then was the law given? What's the point of it? What's the purpose of it? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. So what's the purpose of the law? Why did the law come along? It was added for the sake of transgressions. So that means two things, all right? Number one, it means this. The law came to expose sin. 
The law came to be a diagnostic. The law came to reveal, to show to us what is wrong with us, what is wrong with this world. The law came to put words for our sin, to give words to this uneasiness that we feel within our world. He says it again in Romans 3.20 when he says this, For no one will be justified in the sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes where? Through the law. It says a similar thing in Romans 7, verse 7, where he says this, What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. Now granted, guys, when we read this, it's hard for us to resonate with that. Because all of us in this room have grown up with the law. Either the Ten Commandments was in some kind of, you know, church or in a public building or you see it on a billboard. Like all of us grow up with these names for our sin, right? We all have the law of God imprinted in our own hearts and lives because we're all image bearers of God. But guys, you've got to remember, back when God gave this law, the nation of Israel lived hundreds of years in slavery. They didn't know anything, hardly much about who God was. There's some stories passed along, but they're living in a culture where there's multiple gods, living in a culture where there's all kinds of craziness going on. But guys, look, there was still this uneasiness that was going on in them when they did something wrong. It just wasn't, they weren't able to name it. What is this? What is going on in me when I do this? I feel like something's wrong, but what is that? Well, God gave them this gift to put a name on the uneasy feelings that they were experiencing. Oh, that's coveting. Oh, that's lying. Oh, that's slander. Oh, that's lying. Oh, that's worshiping a false god. That's why I'm not satisfied and content. You follow me? So the law came in order to expose to reveal. The second thing it means is this, and this is where it kind of gets weird. The law came to increase sin. Not just to restrain it. And if you would just take some time and reflect on your own life, you would totally agree with this, right? Whenever somebody says, don't do this, what happens in you? Do you go, oh, thank you. I was hoping you would say that. I will more than happy not do this, right? No, that's not what goes on in you. If you, someone says, you don't do this, something stirs up in you and says, okay, I'm going to do it just because you told me not to. That's some jacked up stuff, amen? See, the law comes and it doesn't necessarily restrain it. It stirs it up more. And if you look at the nation of Israel, when they got the law, they didn't get better, they got worse. And eventually, they were scattered all throughout foreign land because of their rebellion against the law. This is what Paul is after in Romans 5, verse 20. The, call, the, the law came along to what? To multiply the trespass. The knowledge of the law did not restrain sin. It actually stirred it up the more. And so what Paul is trying to help us see here. As the law kind of had this preparatory, right? I'm kind of making up a word, I think, because it was always read in my Word document. All right, so this preparatory purposes, it prepared us to receive and hear and listen to the good news of Jesus Christ. The law did not come to tell about salvation. It came to tell us about our sin. 
the law had an essential part to play in the purpose of God. It wasn't this list of what you got to do in order to get God. No, it was to magnify and show us what our sin is. He goes on. Look what he says here in, in verse 21. So is the law therefore contrary to God's promises since it kind of stirred up more sin? No, absolutely not. In fact, it supports it. It serves it. It shows us our need. It convicts humanity of their sin so that we are all driven to find healing, hope, redemption, forgiveness in Jesus Christ and not in ourselves. It's a gift from God. He goes on in verse, uh, and continues on in verse 21 when he says this, for if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, meaning this, is that if the law had the ability to help you obey what it's commanding, it didn't, it just made it worse, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of law. Verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that, follow my train of thought here, so that God could step back and say, I told you so, that if you eat of the forbidden fruit, then you're going to send the world into all kinds of decay and death. You're going to introduce things like fear and guilt and shame that you knew nothing of. And so I'm going to sit back and just say, hey, you made the bed, lay in it. No, that's not what it says here. So that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to all those who believe. So what's the purpose of the law? Well, here's my translation of it. The purpose of the law came in order for us to get to the end of ourselves. The purpose of the law came in order to bring us to bankruptcy. For us to see our inability so that we're ready to cry out for mercy, not from our heads, but from our heart. Because we see and feel our desperate need of Jesus. I love like how Eugene Peterson translates these few verses here in the message. This is what he says. If such is the case, is the law then an anti-promise, a negation of God's will for us? Not at all. Its purpose was to make obvious to everyone that we are in ourselves out of right relationship with God and therefore to show us the futility of devising some religious system for getting by our own efforts that we can only get by waiting in faith for God to complete his promise. For if any kind of rule keeping and power to create life in us, we would certainly have gotten it by this time. I love that last little phrase. For if any kind of rule keeping had the power to create life in us, man, we would have certainly gotten it. By this time. So why the law? Hear what Paul is saying. It's kind of backwards, but here it is. Paul is saying that you inherit the promise, this blessing of new life with God, the right relationship with him, the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, by not keeping the law, but by seeing that you cannot keep it. Because when you see you cannot keep it, then you cry out for the one who has kept it on your behalf, and his name is Jesus. Martin Luther, in his commentary, states this a whole lot better than what I can. He says this, the principal point of the law is to make humanity not get better but worse. That is to say, it shows 
unto them their sin, that by the knowledge thereof they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken, and by this means may be driven to seek grace and so come to that blessed seed, Jesus. So, if you remember at the beginning, one of my desires in this message, as well as next week, I want us to, um, to see this gift of God and use it in its God-given ways in our lives. So now that we know kind of one of the purposes of the law, then how can we take this gift and use it in a God-given way that God wants us to in our lives? And here's one. That's where we're landing on today. That's it. Here's one. We need to see the law as an arrow and not a target. We need to see the law as an arrow, not a target. And that arrow, first of all, is pointing to our own hearts and convicting and convincing us of our need for help. Look, if you are hearing the law and all you hear from the law is obey me, then you're missing a massive point of the law. Because if you're really listening to how God wants you to hear the law, you're not just going to hear obey me, you're also going to hear you'll never be able to obey me. You can't obey me. The law, if we're taken seriously and all of its demands, it's crushing. We have no ability to do it. I mean, if you really tried to obey the law, you're really taking the Ten Commandments and say, okay, today I'm going to do it, right? Have no other guys before me. Like 100%, your affections, love, it's for God and only for God all throughout that day. You're not going to covet. No Pinterest, no Facebook, no HGTV, right? <laughs> I'm saying like, I don't know, maybe I'm the only one that struggles with coveting. I kind of confessed that a few weeks ago. Hopefully I have a few more people with me on that one, right? I mean, if we really take seriously the law of God, and even when we bring in Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 and 7, like, guys, it's crushing. So if you are hearing the law say, obey me, you're not hearing it fully because you can't. The law is saying to you, you can never obey me. Now, where in the world am I getting that law? Where is this in this text? Well, if you step back and see where the law of God came in Exodus chapter 20, we got the Ten Commandments. And then also what's given in that law is what? The sacrificial system. And why is the sacrificial system given? Because God knew and planned that you couldn't obey the law, right? So he gave a way for us to be temporarily forgiven for the way we disobey the law. So then therefore, look, guys, if we're really hearing the law of God, it's not just saying obey me, it's saying you can't. You cannot obey me. It's an arrow that goes to our heart and exposes our inability. That's the purpose of the law. That's a way of using the law of God in the God-given way. It's an arrow that exposes, that shows you cannot obey. But it's not just there. It also points beyond that, and it points us to Jesus. It's an arrow that points to our heart, and it's an arrow that gets us to Jesus because it shows that we cannot but then there's one who's done it on our behalf. It shows that I can't obey the law and do what the law demands, but there's one 
who did obey the law in its entirety for me. So it's an arrow that points to my heart, and then more so it points to Jesus where I can find hope, healing, restoration, redemption, forgiveness for how I've disobeyed the law. So you following me? So how do I use the law of God in a God-given way that's in his God-given purposes? i got to see it as an arrow that first goes to my heart, exposes my inability, and then it continues beyond that and points toward Jesus, who's the one who did it on my behalf. I mean, think about this, guys. Look, you can go home and, and read this story. But Luke chapter 18, right? It's probably, you know, I would say, and I can't recall all the stories in the Gospels. That's why I have trouble saying this. But I think it's one of the saddest stories in all the Gospels. So you got you got the rich young ruler who's a really good guy. He's a good man. He's been an obedient son. I mean, he really has. He's one of those kids that mom and dad are probably extremely proud of, did what they asked him to do, followed through with all the rules. I mean, you know, cleaned the room, cleaned up after himself, you know, I don't know, just fill in the blanks there. But you know what I'm talking about. This is a good guy. And he comes to Jesus with a good desire. What did he say? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? What do I need to do to get in on this inheritance? What do I need to do to be right with God? I want to be with you. What do I need to do? And Jesus, knowing his heart, what does he say? Remember? He lists the bottom half of the commands. He says, okay, obey your mom and dad. You know, don't cheat, don't lie, don't steal, don't covet. And then what does the rich young man say? I've done all those. I've done those perfectly. And then Jesus looks at the man and says, well, you lack one. Go and sell everything and then come and follow me. And what's the one he lacks? The very first command. You don't love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what did that rich young man do? He turned around and left. He chose to see the law as a target. And he deceived himself in thinking, I'm nailing it. And he chose to embrace that lie and live that lie. Instead of all, guys, look. All he had to say was, I can't. That's it. I haven't obeyed, and I can't obey. And when he cries out for mercy, he's in. He's in. So look, here's how we want to land today. Look, if you're not a Christian here today, then then my encouragement for you is I want to ask just one small little question. How do you see the law? My, my encouragement for you is not to be the rich young ruler. Don't see it as a target. See it as an arrow that's exposing your heart, exposing your inability. That was the purpose of the law. Not to show you can, but to show you can't. And for you to cry out for mercy. That's it. That's all that God's wanting from you. Just raise your Kind of your hands in a posture of surrender. It's, it's a posture of exposure, right? So I, I can't. I'm done. I'm to the end of myself. Have mercy on me, Jesus. And Jesus hears that prayer of mercy and comes to our aid.
If you're a Christian here, guys, look, um, there's a way that we need to approach the law and keep Jesus in our forefront. And this is all I mean by this. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here. In Psalm 24, go home and read it. In Psalm 24, it, it says this, Who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? He who has the clean hands. I'm kind of paraphrasing. Clean hands, a pure heart, he who is righteous. Look, if you're a Christian and you read that psalm and the first thing you think about is you, then you're looking at the law as a target and not an arrow. You're looking at the law in such a way that it's going to crush you. So if you're looking at that psalm, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? A man who is righteous, pure hands, clean heart, and you sit and reflect. Well, I lost my temper with my kids this week. Uh, I probably shouldn't have looked at that. I looked at there. I said this. I've got a really stinky attitude. So, man, I disqualify myself this week, right? If that's how you're reviewing it, then, guys, it's crushing. And it'll leave you just so depleted as a follower of Jesus. But, guys, look, 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 here's the beauty of it. This is how you use the law in a God-given way that brings life, not a curse. Jesus is the only one. He's the only righteous one. He's the only one with clean hands. He's the only one that can approach the heel of the Lord. He is it. He's the fulfillment of Psalm 24. And so with that in mind, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I go back to this psalm and say, wow, I'm in Christ. Yeah, I've blown it this week. Yeah, I haven't approached. Yeah, yeah, unclean, all kinds of craziness going on in my life. But I'm in Christ. And because I'm in Christ, I have fulfilled this. Not because of what I've done, but what Christ has done in and through me. So then, therefore, I don't have fear of owning my failure. I can come to the Lord and say, yeah, I, I've done this, said this. I can be honest before the Lord knowing that Christ has fulfilled this in its full on my behalf. And now I can go out and say, look, I can live this now because now I live in Christ. He's done this on my behalf. And now I'm trying to become who I already am in Jesus. That's how you approach the law and use it in a life-giving way instead of a crushing way as a Christian and a follower of Christ. See it as an arrow that not only exposes your heart, but more importantly as a Christian, it gets you to Jesus. It gets you to Jesus. Let's pray, God.